have a Bible, open up to chapter 6, verse 4 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise up your hand. We'll get one to you. We've got uh, regular and uh, large print version. And if you want a large print, you can do like an L with your hand or something. That that way the ushers know what to get you. And uh, my internet was out at my house, so I was unable to throw them up on the slides tonight. So you'll definitely want a Bible. Kevin, nice of you to join us. (laughs) You got that rugged work look to you. All right, Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's just look at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 4. And uh, it's good to have the children in here with us tonight as we study um, what the Lord's heart is for parents. But uh, I think there's a good word for kids here tonight as well as they know what the Lord requires of their moms and dads. Uh, It's a good word tonight for friends of parents as we are here to encourage one another and exhort one another. And um, it's a good word for grandparents as they get to encourage their children in raising kids as well as, um, you know, it's a good word for grandparents in raising their grandkids as well as a lot of grandparents do. So here's the word of the Lord tonight. Uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The Houston Police Department published a leaflet called How to Ruin Your Children. They said it was a guarantee to be 95% effective. So take notes if you want to ruin your children. Part of the leaflet went like this. Number one, begin with infancy to give the child everything they want. Two, when they pick up bad words, laugh at them. Three, Never give them any spiritual training. Let them wait until they are 21 and let them decide for themselves. Four, avoid using the word wrong. It may develop a serious guilt complex. Five, pick up everything they leave lying around so they will be experienced in throwing responsibility on everyone else. Convicting, huh? Proverbs chapter 127 in verses 3 through 5 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies at the gate. Those of us that have kids, grandkids, Uh, No kids, we can say amen to that. Children are heritage of the Lord. They are the future of uh, the gospel going throughout the world. Um, But sadly, not all parents feel this way. Uh, You spend much time out in the world and uh, and you just see that uh, there's a huge um, letdown in many parents of what parenting has turned out to be. A nationwide survey says 70% of parents would say that if they could do it all over again, they would choose not to have kids. And according to a recent survey, recent report, the number one reason of children finding themselves in foster homes is not divorce, financial destitution, or death, but simply the disinterest of their parents. 
And Lindsay and I were recently taking a foster adopt class and we watched many videos with children's testimonies of being abandoned by their moms and dads and not being loved and not being loved by their foster parents and being driven through McDonald's with, uh, with uh, their foster parents and their new foster siblings and, and uh, foster mom and dad say, we're not buying you McDonald's because the state doesn't give us enough to to feed you that, so you get PB&J when we get home. And, and uh, to know that that's what some, some kids, and that's probably the good end of things, uh, that a lot of foster kids have uh, experienced uh, compared to others. But it, it certainly is grieving um, to, to read the Proverbs 127 account, but then to hear of others uh, who say, my kids aren't arrows in my quiver, uh, but they're thorns in my side. And what's the big difference between arrows in quiver and thorns in the side? From saying that my child is a gift from God or he's a burden that I have to bear, uh, the, the scholars would say in my readings that it's most often the result of parental involvement in the life of their children. And so as we saw last week, the ultimate account of responsibility rests on not the daycare center, not the schools, not Sunday school classes, not Awanas, or even lead pastors or elders in a church. But the main responsibility for raising a child in the way that they should go rests on who's addressed in verse 4. Fathers. We looked at this in depth, that the, the task assigned goes to dads, task assigned to fathers, the task defined, do not provoke your children to anger. You read it with me there in verse four, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so we have the who, fathers, we have the what, don't provoke them to anger or to wrath, don't discourage them as Colossians 3 puts it, and bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord would be the how. Now, when we speak of fathers, we don't speak of men who are physically able to procreate or to bring home the bacon, but men who are able to initiate love and bring spiritual direction into their kids' lives. Uh, men who make it easy for kids to speak of spiritual things, even doubts that they might have. We're not speaking of tyrannical fathers who display moralistic meanness, but we speak of gospel fathers here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. We speak of men who uh, are involved in the church, as we saw in chapter uh, 4 verse 11 last week. We see men who have been born again. That's the fathers that are addressed here. And there's a word to fathers, uh, first of all, in the negative sense, what, what we're to avoid, pitfalls to avoid. And we saw that that is, you know, don't provoke them to wrath. And we looked in depth last week at that. If you weren't here, you can listen to it online. Uh, and, and, and we have the positive as well, bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And we'll look at that tonight. But quickly, you guys are getting to know that I'm enjoying the J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible. Uh, J.B. Phillips was a minister in Scotland during World War II. Or I'm sorry, it was London. Uh, they're all the same, let's be honest. No, I'm kidding. Um, and uh, he had a heart for the youth, but he realized that kids were having trouble reading their Bibles. He was a Greek scholar, and so he made a translation that was really easy for them to chew on and comprehend. And listen to what J.B. Phillips translates Ephesians 6-4 as. You might close your eyes and just listen. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children or make it difficult for them to obey the commandment. Bring them up with Christian teaching in Christian discipline. Last week, we dug into why is this addressed to fathers in particular. And we looked at, first of all, it's because a father is the loving leader of his family. We see that in chapter 5, verse 22. 
We see that this is not a command for husbands to act as the head, but rather it's the indicative that they are the head, so be it. So the language isn't, you know, come on dads, come on husbands, act like the head, you know, uh, or, uh, or um, excuse me, the command to um, uh, be the head, but it is you already are, so just function in what God's created you to be. And I just want to read this again, review from last week. Headship is defined by his responsibility to love. All right, this is good. This is good for us. It's correction to a lot of us. His leadership expresses itself not as being autocratic leader who makes decisions that bring about whatever happens he happens to want, but by acting for the greatest good of everyone else in the family, doing everything, making all of his decisions on the basis of what's best for everyone else. Therefore, his leadership is rooted at its core in self-denial. This is how he leads. This is what it means to lead. His authority is expressed in displays of love. Ultimate accountability for loving leadership rests with the Father. The emphasis is not in headship, but the emphasis in Ephesians is on love. All right? That's the emphasis here. He's to provide direction, to know the need of his children, to have his thumb on the spiritual condition of his home. So why are fathers addressed? Because fathers are the head of the home. Secondly, why are fathers addressed? It's typically because we are the ones who need the greatest correction in these areas. You know, we are the fountains of domestic authority biblically, but fathers are more prone to passion in relation to their children than their mothers who tend to fault. And if they err, their fault is rather in overindulgence, not overcorrection of their children. So the negative in verse 4 is don't provoke your children to wrath. And the positive is bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This phrase, bring them up speaks of nourishment or to bring your child to maturity. It actually speaks of the relationship the husband has to the wife as well in the latter part of chapter 5 of Ephesians. And at one point, this word was used to, to speak of nursing a baby. And so it, it speaks of nourishing physically, but also spiritually, bringing them up into spiritual maturity, bringing them up. Uh, in the training of the Lord. To quote Piper, John Piper, so the focus is on the fact that in all that a father does to bring his children to maturity, there should be a provision and a care that assures the child that behind all of the discipline and instruction, there is a great heart of love. This earthly father is working all things together for the good of, for the nourishment of his child. And so God's character is being displayed. You'll remember that the title of this whole series is Gospel Family. Not do it yourself or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps family, but it's trust in the provider of strength, Trust in the example to follow. Trust in the one who's done it for us and who gives us the power to now copy him. And so we get to look at our good and perfect father. Uh, we get to look at God the father and we will when we get to Hebrews 12 tonight. But uh, the father really has the responsibility to cherish his children fondly just as our heavenly father does, to rear them tenderly, just as our heavenly father does, to sustain them spiritually, you can say it, just as our heavenly father does. And if you go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, there's this command to Abraham. And it says, it's said of Abraham, Genesis 18, 19, for I have known him, 
known Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken of him. And so we have this command to the fathers in Ephesians 6, 4 to bring their, their children up in training. And we go back to Father Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, sit down, stand around, turn around. Okay, we already did that. That was the first song tonight. Uh, but our Father Abraham was was ordained in God's sovereignty to lead his home to keep the way of the Lord. And he was to train his children and his children's children and his children's children's children. And it kind of became this ridiculous Russian doll situation all the way down to, well, us today. Uh, As Alistair Begg says, in all of this training, concerning the things we make optional to our children, They are bright enough to understand that they're clearly not foundational in what we desire for them. Therefore, it follows that if we continually enforce the development of their mental capacities, vital as it is, if we continually enforce their progress in the physical dimension of life, as important as it is, while having an attitude toward their spiritual progress, which is at least ambivalent or uncertain, if not haphazard or careless and left to chance, then we ought not to be so naive to think that when the watercolored ponies and their painters leave our nest, they will somehow be sustained by spiritual volumes which we've chosen to make optional for them in the brief time that they were under our care. Did you get that? If we make their spiritual growth and development, their relationship with Jesus, an optional thing, an uncertain thing, a careless thing on our parts as parents, then we shouldn't be surprised that when they grow up and they leave the nest and they go to Oregon State University and they have Professor, what was his name? Marcus Borg, whose sole goal in life as a self-proclaimed Christian is to absolutely destroy the faith of the young Christians that come into his classroom, then don't be surprised if your children get chewed up and spit out by the lions out there. All right? Future parents, current parents, and grandparents, be warned that We have a holy, sacred call to raise up our children in the training of the Lord. That our 19-year-old can stand up in his classroom and rightly divide the word of truth, providing an apologetic discourse that would make even Marcus Borg tremble. And they can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, training them through you and empowering them, empowering their lips. Train them up, parents. You guys have probably heard of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, it's the prayer that the Jew prays many times during the day. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echud. And it says this, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Prineville. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now listen. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your children, your grandchildren, sorry, I keep looking at you, Blaine. Your children need an invasion of their mind with the gospel and the word of God, they need to be provided with the information to help them make the right choices. 
There was a conversation back in the late 1700s between two 18th century literary critics and philosophers. Their names were Thelwall and Coleridge, and this conversation went something like this. It's unfair to bias a child's thinking before they can choose for themselves, says Thelwall. I showed him my garden, says Coleridge. Sorry, I'm getting my eyes checked tomorrow. I'm having trouble. <laughs> I showed them my garden, Coleridge said, covered with weeds, and I described it as a botanical garden. How so, said Thelwall. I replied that it had not yet come to years of discretion. True, the weeds have taken the mean advantage of growing everywhere, but I could not be so unfair as to prejudice the soil in favor of roses and strawberries. Guys, our kids are a garden before us that the seed of the gospel will be cast out upon and you have a one in four option that it will land on either a thorny ground where the cares of the world choke it out, a rocky ground where the sun comes out and scorches it or the birds come down and steal it. And yes, it's up to the Lord and his sovereignty, but the seed is cast out. And so we pray for that That strange dichotomy to take place where the, the hearts of our children would receive the word of God with gladness. May we cultivate the soil of their heart through prayer and through training and through instruction. Your children should be able to speak plainly about their faith to you in your home. There should be that environment where they can express doubts and questions around the dinner table. If they don't ask in your home, they're going to ask other places where a lie will be offered to satisfy their inquiries. There's a great difference, someone said, between indoctrination and stimulation. Two words here. Training and admonition. Training is the word pahidia. And it refers to rules and regulations, rewards and punishments. So just a, a training in these things, understanding the standards of the Lord, the regulations of the Lord, the rewards and the punishments. We see here that you shall teach them diligently in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You teach the precepts of the Lord to your children diligently. This diligence is marked by steady, earnest, energetic effort. Another word instead of diligent is painstakingly. Does that describe you parents and your training of your children, that you are painstakingly training your children up in the Lord. As we just studied this week in Romans 12, 11, we're not to lag in diligence. Have you been lagging in this diligence of teaching your children? We read there in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy shall talk of them when you sit in your house Talking about the word, just when you're sitting around the table, around uh, uh, the couches. You know, in our home, you can come over right now and there will be a Bible by the couch, a Bible by the table, a Bible by each kid's bed, and a Bible by our bed. And just when we're lounging, lounging we whip out the Bible and we read and, and we try to get every children's Bible that we can lay our hands on. So, you know, to just keep their interest and to tell it from another pictorial point of, you know, and to just help train our children. You know, recently have uh, attempted, and it's been a lot of fun, I just need to have some more diligence in it, uh, having a children's catechism at our table. And to just say, Russell, who made you? Oh, why did he make you? For his own glory. What else did he make? How many gods are there? How many people exist within this God? Three. God the... God the Holy Spirit. You know, so just... Just God the glory, right? You know, 
And so just, it's fun, you know, we make it a game. Laney's starting to get into, you know, because he loves me, because, everything's because he loves me. Um, and, and it's just fun, but training them, you know, up in the Lord. And man, we're really pathetic, so don't be impressed. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, th- that's like question one through four of 150 or something. But um, we should talk of the word when we sit in our home. When we walk by the way, walking up Barnes Butte and talking of creation and just Russell asking the question, how did God make all these mountains? What, you know, why did he make them? Uh, Tammy's husband, Scott, and I were walking by the reservoir behind our property and, uh, and their boys were with us, with Russell and, and, uh, and um, Elliot had this little sewn bag that he had and inside the bag he had his bible and as he's walking along he breaks out the bible i mean this was all him not us at all and he opens up genesis and as he's reading he's walking and he reads uh four chapters of genesis in a, in a half hour walk and it's like how about you teach us while we walk by the way you know you know while you're walking just talking about our god and creation gives so many opportunities for that when you lie down, having Bibles by the bedstand, when you rise up, giving the Lord the first fruits of your day, your first energy, the best of you, you're looking for these teachable moments in every opportunity of life. You shall bind them on a sign as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. When you go to Israel, you see that the Jews have phylacteries, Jesus mentions them in Matthew 24, or in Matthew 23, uh, and, and the, these phylacteries are developed from this verse. They have these leather straps wrapped around their arms from their uh, elbow all the way up that have the words of uh, the Shema written on it, uh, and then they have these boxes that they strap around their forehead, and these boxes come out, and the, the words of the law are written in these boxes. And so they literally bound the words on their on their eyes, on their hands. Uh, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The, the Jews have the mezuzah, and we brought one back from Israel. It's a tiny little replica of the law uh, with a small box inside that you, you scroll up the law in. And I brought one home last week just so that I could lead by example. I typed up, you know, Jesus says the fulfillment of the law is, and I typed up the, um, the Beatitudes, and I I haven't printed off, I haven't rolled it up yet, but wanted to do that before this study to put in the mezuzah and put it on our doorpost. And the Jews, every time they leave home, they put their hand on the mezuzah uh, to remember the words of the Lord. Uh, and so, you know, not to be legalistic, but we do it because of the good news, because of the gospel. We're prompted by love for our Lord. Um, and so, uh, just we see this intentionality in addressing the minds of our children. And you've got to be intentional about it. Are you teaching them the subtleness of the cults? That the cults use just enough of the gospel to persuade the naive and the unlearned and the unthinking uh, to believe that we really are following the same thing after all. Do your kids have any clue how to combat that? Are you so embedded in the gospel or embedding the gospel in your kids that they can easily decipher spiritual distortions of morality or just moralists who are preaching legalism and self-righteousness rather the grace and truth and the power of the gospel? It's a good thing that you've told your kids to marry a Christian someday. And they may just go for a guy or a gal that looks almost like a Christian. But have you trained them up in the discernment of what a Christian really looks and sounds like? And train them up in these things. So Deuteronomy, you go back two chapters from the Shema. In verse nine, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, where they're told to take heed for themselves and diligently keep themselves, lest they forget the things their eyes have seen. Unless they depart from their heart all the days of their life and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. There it is. You guys are like, man, I was just about to get up and walk out. Okay. 
Teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, especially the day you stood before Mount Sinai and, and the law was given when the Lord said, gather the people to me, I'll let them hear my words that they could learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. Psalm 78, one through eight is a contemplation of Asaph. Asaph's fables, you might, okay. Um, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I'll utter dark sayings of old, which we've heard and known, which our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works, which he has done. Verse 5 of Psalm 78 For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. William Tate wrote that Nineveh's parents were held responsible. When archeologists were digging in the ruins of Nineveh, they came upon a library of plaques containing the laws of the realm. One of the laws read in effect that anyone guilty of neglect would be held responsible for the result of his neglect. If you fail to teach your children to obey, if you fail to teach him to respect the property rights of others, you and not he are responsible for the results of their neglect, of your neglect. I'm not sure Nineveh had it totally wrong. <laughs> As we have one of the first verses in the Proverbs, my son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. Are we giving our children the crowns and the necklaces of the wisdom of the Lord? Are we teaching them diligently? As Timothy is family did. We read in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 that Timothy should continue on the things that he'd learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And that from childhood, he had known the Holy Scriptures, able to make him wise for salvation. From childhood, he knew the word, he knew the gospel. He knew the word that could make him wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, the verse continues. We read of his mother Eunice and his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, who had a big part in raising him up in the word. And so there's the training aspect of our parenting. Amen? Okay. Then there's the second word, which is the admonition aspect of our parenting. The gentle or friendly reproof, the counsel or warning against fault or oversight. Do you like it when I just quote Webster's? Let him do all the work for me. (laughs) Gentle, friendly, correction, warning against sin. We don't like that. We don't like admonition. As adults, we don't like to be admonished so often, but I think that's because we forget the exhortation which speaks to us as sons. From Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, as Proverbs is quoted, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. And that word chastening speaks of this admonishing, this gentle, gentle reproof, this gentle correction, this warning. Don't despise being warned. And even you men today, don't be despised when a brother in the Lord comes and warns you of the path that you're on. Don't be discouraged, the proverb goes on, when you are rebuked by him. 
For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That word scourges speaks of to flog. To flog. To spank severely. And the Lord, when he loves somebody, every son he receives, receives this correction that is lovingly extreme. And if you endure the chastening, we're told in Hebrews, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've all had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So one thing that we see from not only verbal admonition and warning, but also physical spanking or flogging, as the language speaks of, is that there will be a harvest after this loving, gentle, spirit-filled correction, whether verbal or physical, it's a sign of love and it bears much fruit afterwards. Job says that the man is happy that is corrected by the Lord. So don't despise the chastening of the Almighty. I love those times where although no correction seems pleasant for the moment, a split second You know, after perhaps a a spanking of correction, there can be the most awesome times of joy as we lovingly affirm our, our love for our kids. And the reason there was correction was because we love them. We get to have a fun little tickle and roll and, you know, just a good affirmation that this was all in love and for his benefit, but more importantly, for the glory of God. Proverbs 19, 18 Proverbs 19.18 says, Chasten your son while there is still hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. And so we see here that within the correction and within the admonition of our children, yes, there should be correction, but it shouldn't be done out of a heart of anger that is bent on destroying him. Putting him to death is how the verse literally reads. And you'll remember the culture that this was written in you know, fathers had the right uh, to sell their kids into slavery or even perform capital punishment in the death sentence on their kids. They could chain them to the, to the post in the field to make them work back in the day. And I speak of Roman fathers. We all know Proverbs thirteen twenty four: He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly or early. Now, why is this? Why is it that if we love our children, we'll correct them, we'll even spank them, uh, and we'll discipline them early on in their life? Why? Why is there such a, a, you know, make haste in the discipline? Uh, A great resource I would recommend to you is Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. I think we have a couple in our library here. Uh, And so a good resource for tonight, I'll, I'll quote Ted a few times. Um, his brother is uh, Paul David Tripp, who wrote What Were You Expecting, the marriage book that's out in the foyer. So you got two Tripp brothers with big walrus mustaches, um, and that alone is worth reading um, their writings. But, uh, and so the question, why is this that we should not spare the rod and discipline our children promptly? Well, here's uh, just a quote from, uh, from Ted Tripp. We often are taught that a man becomes a sinner when he sins. The Bible teaches that man sins because he's a sinner. Your children are never morally neutral, not even from the womb. 
One of the justifications for spanking children is from Proverbs 22:15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. The heart of your child is not neutral. He or she is either worshiping and serving and growing in understanding of the implications of who God is, or he is seeking to make sense of life without a relationship with God. If he is living as a fool who says in his heart that there is no God to quote the Psalms, he doesn't cease to be a worshiper. He simply worships what is not God. Part of the parent's task is to shepherd him as a creature who worships, pointing him to the one who alone is worthy of his worship. The question is not, will he worship? It is always, whom will he worship? And here's a quick plug for the book. Implications for childbearing, the issue of Godward orientation, separates what you read here from most other books in the child rearing. And so uh, Ted Tripp really goes into what we studied in the book of Romans, that sin is nothing more than an idolatry problem, a heart issue. It's worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It is worshiping self. It's worshiping my wants, my needs, my kingdom, rather than the creator and, and all that he is in all of his holiness and righteousness. Proverbs 23, 13 says, do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Proverbs 20, 30, blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. And we live in a culture that to spank is not yet considered child abuse, but it very well may become that within our lifetimes. And I believe it's Germany right now that it's illegal to spank your children. And this is just a, a case where we obey the Lord rather than men. And we will get into, of course, where this spanking becomes sinful and becomes something that many parents should probably be put away in prison for. Um, We'll get into that. Um, but to just throw something out for discussion, the Douay Rhymes version, uh, which was the 1582 English college translation of the Latin Vulgate, says, The blueness of a wound shall wipe away evils and stripes in the more inward parts of the belly. That's that's a, a 1582 uh, translation of blows that hurt, cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart, Proverbs 20, 30. Now, we have the tendency to become extremists on two different areas in our discipline. We can have excessive sternness on one side. We looked at that last week, often our excessive sternness and legalistic rules and regulations. Uh, they can often be what provokes our children to wrath. So listen to that study last week. Um, but within this uh, excessive sternness, we can lay hold of you know, the command to spank with such vigor and hardiness and life that we turn to it immediately for security and primarily as the only way that we govern our children. That would be an excess. That would be, uh, that would be the wrong end of the spectrum. There needs to be a level of restraint uh, as we're exhorted here in Ephesians 6.4, either by virtue of our personality or by virtue of our human tendency uh, that our response can be in this extreme to that direction. In the exercise of discipline or punishment, we need to be careful not to punish at least in these three occasions. Listen up. Number one, when we're just annoyed or when our pride has been injured, number two. When we've lost our temper. Now that's a challenge to us dads because I know what you're thinking. I'm not sure there's ever been a time I haven't disciplined my children where I haven't been annoyed or my pride hasn't been hurt or I've lost my temper. 
But when you've done this, and there's grace tonight, we can come to the throne of grace and confess sin and receive mercy and help in time of need. But if you've done this, you'd better get a hold of your kids before they go to sleep at night and confess your sin to them and repent. The last thing our children need to see is a dad that never admits when he's wrong or when he's sinned who, you know, spanks his kids for getting in a fight with each other, but thinks it's totally okay to get in a big blowout fight with mom and never repent to mom, even in front of the kids. Dad needs to show the kids that he's a sinner too. And when he, not, not show them the sin, but confess and repent of the sin uh, when it comes up and comes about. Beware from, of excessive sternness and the operation of admonition. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Come on, you got it at least be in Ephesians, right? Go back two chapters to chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You think that applies to those moments when you're annoyed with your kid uh, or when he's hurt your pride or when he's disobeyed a rule in the home or when he's showing rebellion? Do you think it's okay to be bitter, wrathful, speak evil to your son or your daughter, be hateful? No, this is a word to Christians Put these things away. John Piper says, anger is the cannibal emotion. It eats all the others till none is left. It does this first in fathers, and then this constricted soul is passed on to the children. Anger is absorbed as the dominant emotion, and all the tender feelings die. Paul says, don't let that happen. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger with your anger. The remedy is the gospel. As Christ forgave you, so you must forgive others. And so we want to ask ourselves in the disciplinary times in life, ask ourselves the same question that we asked in conflicts within marriage. Ask yourself this question. And am I upset because God's kingdom and glory are being attacked and defamed? Or am I upset because my kingdom, my glory, my comfort, my reputation are being attacked. Which are you angry over? Ted Tripp, the rod is the careful, timely, measured, and controlled use of physical punishment. The rod is never a venting of parental anger. It is not what the parent does when he is frustrated. It is not a response to feeling that this child has made things hard for him. It is always measured and controlled. The parent knows the proper measure of severity for this particular child at this particular time. And the child knows how many swats are to come. If you allow unholy anger to muddy the correction process, you are wrong. You need to ask for forgiveness. Your right to discipline your child is tied to what God has called you to do, not your own agenda. Unholy anger, anger over the fact that you are not getting what you want from your child will muddy the waters of discipline. Anger that your child is not, uh, uh, anger that your child is not doing what you want frames discipline as a problem between parent and child, not as a problem between the child and God. It is God who, you are not, uh, who is not honored. The issue is not an interpersonal contest. Rather, it is your insistence that your child obey God because obeying God is good and right. Be careful that you're not just angry because we are not getting what we want. I love the conversations that happen in our home that are something like this, where I would say, you don't, you didn't obey daddy, did you? And my child says, no. 
Do you remember what God, sa- what God says daddy must do when you disobey? Spank me. That's right. I must spank you. If I don't, then I would be disobeying God. You and I would both be wrong. And that wouldn't be good for you or me, would it? Followed by the reluctant reply of no. What's the dialogue communication with your child during the spanking? You're not spanking him because you're mean. You're not trying to force him to submit to you only because you hate insolence. You're not mad at him during the spanking process. You like him and are under God's rule and authority. God has called you to a task that you cannot shirk or shrug off. You are acting under God's rule. You are requiring obedience because God says you must. And so we have the extreme on one end of being overbearing and angry in the discipline process and abusive and and partaking in child abuse, which is a crime and which is a sin. But equally, if not more prevalent, oftentimes, the approach where we just don't do anything at all when our kids misbehave. It's a new word I learned in my foster care class, misbehave. You mean sin? Okay, don't say that there. Um, and so the, the pendulum swings from a wrongful approach to uh, no approach at all, which is equally as wrong. Discipline should not be no discipline. It should be right discipline. And in this admonition that we read of here, um, it, it needs to be Uh, overt in the exercise of Proverbs principles that we've read tonight. And some of us are hopeless in this area and we pass discipline off to our wives or off to our teachers or the principals in the school or to the children's ministry workers or to the pastors. It's not right. Fathers. Fathers. E.K. Simpson was a professor at Cambridge University and pastor of the Free Church in Edinburgh for two years. He wrote uh, an earlier generation in language that is somewhat archaic, uh, but at least uh, this generation of post-World War I uh, learned of this other extreme of, of no discipline, where he says, too many parents nowadays foster the latent mischief in children by a policy of laissez-faire which is French for policy free from intervention, pampering their pert urchins like pet monkeys whose escapades furnish a kind of amusement as irresponsible freaks of no serious import. Woo, gotta love the Scottish. Uh, And so what he's saying right here is that instead of intervening uh, when our children are misbehaving, uh, we laugh at them, we make jokes about them, uh, and uh, we uh, just allow it to go on. Whether it's in church or it's in other people's homes, we act like it's the 4th of July parade that's something to be laughed at rather than lovingly uh, and uh, honorably uh, corrected and shepherded in the child's heart. Uh, E.K. Simpson continues, such unbridled, and remember this is World War I language from Scotland, so uh, you know, uh, he says, such unbridled young scamps, for lack of correction, develop too often into headstrong, peevish, self-seeking char- characters, menaces to the community where they dwell, and the blame rests, and here's the sting of the tale, with their weak-willed and duty-shirking parents. And so the issue is fathers, especially, is where the responsibility lies. Don't be duty-shirking, weak-willed dads. Grandparents who have children that are now parents, don't be weak-willed, duty-shirking parents to these parents. Teach them up in the training of the Lord so that we don't have these Monkeys and urchins in Walmarts, you know, tearing everything off the shelf on the way down or keying cars, you know, on the side of the street. 
or giving our Sunday school teachers gray hair. Anthony, the Italian stallion, he's way too young for gray hair, you guys. But there's an answer to this. There's power beyond ourself. You're not hearing here, do better, be better. You know, put some elbow grease into this discipline, this training, this admonition thing. What we're saying is, God sympathizes with us in our weakness. He understands this. He himself is a parent. He's a father. And there's a book that's been written that enables us to be the dads and the moms that we need to be. And it's not shepherding a child's heart. It's the word of God. It's the inspired revelation of a holy God. But to quote shepherding a child's heart one more time. Confrontation with the immediate and undeniably tactile sensation of a spanking renders an implicable child sweet. I've seen this principle hold true countless times. The young child who is refusing to be under authority is in a place of grave danger. It's so true. When we have the correction times in our home where we're able to explain with our children the sin, the offense to God, our responsibility to parent that, uh, oftentimes they lay themselves over our knee and receive the correction. And then there's kisses and hugs and tears on both sides. And, and this isn't every time. Like, wow, Dad's the model, Rory's the model dad. Man, I failed. I failed on the over extreme end and I failed in the no discipline end. And uh, this has been a good convicting teaching for me, um, unlike any of you, I'm sure. But uh, training and admonition of the Lord is necessary. The children are asking, are there borders to my freedom? Or can I do anything they want to do anytime I want to do it? They're also wondering, is there an end to the quality and quantity of my father's love? Will I push the borders so that he doesn't love me? Is there a limit anywhere? The older your kids get, the more they understand that for a dad to say no is a tough thing. And they'll test that limit more and more and more. We're thankful for Sunday school. We're thankful for Christian daycare. We're thankful for Awanas over at uh, Calvary Baptist Church on Wednesday nights. That's where everybody is tonight, in case you're wondering. Uh, We're thankful for our Sunday school teachers. But who is responsible for the training of their children? We've been hearing a lot in this church. The elders are responsible. The Sunday school teachers are responsible for training our children. There's a level of responsibility there. But the main responsibility is with fathers. The main responsibility, biblically, is with dads. And so how much time, dads, are you taking for training and instruction and admonition to strengthen the moral fiber of their lives so that when they're confronted with unbelievable temptation, they can look to the dads first for guidance, for counsel, for wisdom, and for correction when they fail. This training and admonition you'll see there in verse 4, it's of the who. Sometimes I fall into the sin of saying it's of the roared. Not true at all. Forgive me. But it's of the Lord. John Piper, I take it to mean that the content of a father's teachings and warnings, or the content of a teacher's, a father's teachings and warnings, and the method of a father's modeling discipline, and the goal of a father's whole life with his children will be from the Lord, through the Lord, and for the Lord. That is, a father will guide all his words and ways by God's word and depend on God's wisdom and strength to apply them and make everything serve the glory of Christ. In other words, the most important thing in raising children is that they come to see Christ the Lord as supremely valuable as Savior and Lord and treasure and the treasure of life. Everything is measured by how that might be biblically achieved. 
The training and the admonition is of the Lord, by the Lord, and for the Lord. Who's the chief instructor in discipline? The Lord. It's of the Lord, by the word of the Lord. Behind us, in the moment of disciplining and in the moment of training, is the chief discipliner. Rian, disciplinarian. And the chief teacher. The one that people would follow and call rabbi. And he's standing behind us, dads, and he's saying, go on, do it. Teach this passage to your son. Go on, do it. Swat that little backside in love. The overriding concern of our heart ought to bring the heart of our children to the heart of the Savior. It's the training and instruction of You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.